All right, so bonjour, bienvenue, désolé, let's get this out of the way first. Marched into the cinema like cavemen into the Versailles of Louis the Fifteenth, said Jean-Luc Godard when describing this podcast. Welcome so on board. To today's hmm. episode, Kadri, who who often adores things like rules and structures, pushed us to watch one of them French films. Well, I was not able to convince you to watch more Italian-French co-productions for now, so. A French production I was able to snuggle in with flying colors. I, I, I'm getting the ha- feeling that you have a thing for the French. That's me. I'm your host, Carri. There's many R's in there. We also have Henrik here. How are you, Henrik? How are you, Henrik? <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty much like, like you expressed. <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, what better start for... Uh, Kind of an intellectual cinema, after which we will once again go into bargain bin shit. Before you say it, Henrik, I actually did like this film, just so we get it out of the way and so you don't have to get into this. Aha, I told you. I, 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 am, I, I must admit, I am a bit astonished by that notion. Oh, well, I can't wait to hear your views on this. But before we get to that, this podcast is sponsored by Body Pumpkin, your fastest way to pump up your body with kinetic superpowers. <laughs> Just don't pump up your next of kin. Batteries not included. Law enforcement restrictions may apply. Order now and you'll get 50% of your brain cells off by calling 555-PUMP. In in this product that is mo- that, that it most definitely is FCC approved. Security first, especially when young children are tuning in. But this is also the kind of film podcast where we... Try to kind of determine at which velocity and angle Jean-Luc Godard should have traveled in his tracking shot wheelchair for him to have launched into orbit. Because we make nothing but sense here. Well, but ma- ma- making sense kind of actually goes hand in hand with today's film, which is which is part of the French New Wave cinematic movement, which is famous or infamous, how you ever want to kind of see it. On the, on the fact that it is really hard in making sense, at least in a traditional way. Is it making sense to you? Depends on, on the film, and the, uh, or depends on are we talking about, about the movement or an individual film? Well, what we have tonight here might not make all that much of sense, even though you could argue that it's a quite an uncomplicated plot. But then again, then again, dive a little bit deeper and everything is up for interpretation. It's that kind of a flick. Yeah, but but we, we, with that out of the way, I would still maintain that my original behind-the-scenes estimate that this might be one of the easiest films to soothe you into French New Wave. Like this, this makes kind of the most sense. 
it, it gets even more complicated from here on onwards. That it is. But why are we watching this film now? Yeah, it's one of those films that we have to get out of the way before we reach the 100th episode. I mean, come on, any podcast that uh, pretends to be a film podcast just has to look at Jean-Luc Godard product, right? Oh, I really don't feel this... I really don't feel this level of commitment into anything that you have to or have not to do. Well, with that in mind, we just might watch next stop or mom will shoot. Or what was the title? Precisely that, if you're talking about one of the absolute shit Sylvester Stallone comedies. Spottiswood directed. I, I remember that he made two, stop or, my mom, or mom will shoot and Oscar and both of them actually are pretty bad. Oscar unsurprisingly did not win any Oscar. But also Jean-Luc Godard never won an Oscar except as like a career achievement when he was in his 80s already or close to. Yeah, that that token Oscar which you which you give to a director when you have failed to give him anything else and then you kind of just kind of the academy kind of have to give him that the at least something just so that they can save face. This is the price of failure, Mr. Bond. I, I I would say, I would say, completely wrong country, wrong genre, even wrong film theory, and most definitely wrong movie. But it's not pleasant, for God's sake. Okay, what's your history with this film, Henrik? Seen this a few times before. I originally started with the French New Wave with the works of Jean-Pierre Melville. And to me, my my whole Godard phase came actually quite late when you compare it to the others who have delved into into the new wave movement of French filmmaking. Also, not even my first Godards that I saw. I kind of fucked it up originally when I started with Godard's movies, and the, the first Godard I experienced was actually one of his later fil- films. It was The Weeknd. So, to, to me, I'm, I'm when it comes to Breathless, I'm, I'm kind of one of those late boomers on, on that regard. And kind of a, something that I first realized when I saw Breathless the first time was that I kind of, like, like I said, I kind of fucked it up with Godard. By, by starting looking at his films from the weekend, I should have actually started the whole process with Breathless. I feel I have started watching films on a kind of a weird footing, which you probably would agree with. But the, the way that I have watched movies is just usually picking up whatever was on television when I was a teenager or a kid and just try to kind of uh, widen my horizons from there and see what happens type of thing. I wasn't ever really looking at any best of films, best of directors. Well, to give you the short version of this jargon, it's uh, my first time seeing Breathless. So once again, I am the completely horrible heretic of this podcast. And then again, if if this is your first time with, with Kodar, first time with... French New Wave, you actually might be doing something right. What's that? Well, because I would maintain, Breathless actually is one of the easiest works of the French New Wave to actually get into, and therefore one of the best starting points, if you are interested about French New Wave. 
it's it's not as as hard to to decipher as for example some of the letter works from Godard or other other uh, cashier du cinema directors and it's not as much of a all over ballpark like for example Jean Pierre Melville's productions which of which some are French New Wave and some are simply neo-noir films. There is no consistency that you can't just, you know, look at Melville's entire body of work, pick any film at random and be guaranteed that what you are seeing really is French New Wave. It feels pretty silly now that I have never seen Breathless. I even feel quite ashamed considering how big of a deal this has been in the history of cinema. I but. actually am not really that surprised. I, I I don't know if if that's condemnation of my character, but no. I I was more surprised by the fact that you wanted us to cover Breathless than the fact that you hadn't seen it before. Like I I would have taken that you are the last person on earth who would want to deal with the new wave movement. And, and the films that it produced. Simply by by going be, with the virtue that, that in the previous episodes you you have emphasized the importance of of certain cinematic rules, cinematic traditions, and and kind of established structures in in film storytelling. And what the new wave most definitely and mostly was about was abolishing and and abandoning those structures. Like Godard himself is is famous for for his quote. He was once asked that can't you man, can't you at least agree that a movie has to have a beginning, a middle and an end? And Godard famously replied that yeah, sure, I can agree with that, but they don't necessarily have to be in that order. <laughs> so that's that's kind of the the ideal that is running behind the, the French New Wave movement. And for for someone who actually likes and and values structure and values rules and and coherence in in the way how films are made. The whole new new wave movement can can feel quite alienating. It it felt to me when I originally started watching new wave and when I originally started with Godard. Perhaps it's more about when you watch a film that is formulaic. For example, the ones that we have been going through here for I don't know over a year now, the James Bond films. They have certain audience expectations. And you can kind of tell when they're trying to do their something aching to beginning, middle and an end in a satisfying way for the audience. They don't always get it right. Maybe maybe that is the core problem that you try to follow certain rules, but then you are not necessarily delivering on those rules. What Godard is doing here is just saying, fuck the rules. And you can look at this film in a different way. In that sense. He kind of is. Then again, he is, or I would maintain, he still in Breathless. He isn't in his hardcore mode. When it comes to abandoning the rules or or, the, or trying to redefine cinema and cinematic language, he does that to a degree. And, and you can see 
you can e even in Prethras, you can see the traditional Kodar elements. There, there is the untraditional way how the film is shot. The usage of long tracking shots, the the dialogue, the at at times weird and very hectic jump cutting that they love to use. The fourth wall breaks, which is something that. Godard really liked to pull off in, in his films. The, all, all those elements are present in Breathless, but I would say that they, they are not so hyperactive as, as they are in, in some of his later films. In, in Breathless, you can still actually find the typical three-act structure. You can still find the beginning, middle, and, and the end. And that's something that, that I, I would say Godard tried more and more distance himself from as as his film films progressed uh, and he made more and more movies like when you compare breathless to the weekend or or his version of king lear i, I would say breathless is much more traditional cinema than those films are even though breathless most definitely is still a film from the french new wave and shows you what the new wave is about and how they do film. This fourth wall break certainly took me by surprise, and uh, I wasn't sure if it even was a fourth wall break. It took me like a few moments to notice that, okay, it was actually an intentional and actual fourth wall break, and the jump cuts are jump cuts, and not only maybe some cuts in the original footage that couldn't be salvaged and fixed. It, it, it's it's kind of yeah and uh, no with, with the jump cuts the jump cuts here they end up serving the cinematic style and ideas that Godar wanted to present and put forward with with his movies but at the same time the jump cuts that the french new wave used they were also something that at least partly stemmed from desperation and having to do those cuts the the french new wave was Quite often, shot with a shoe shoestring tight budgets, they they use their own homes, their friends' homes, and they tried to to cut the corners and cut the expenses as much as possible. And and the hectic cutting nature of many of the films actually some stems from this. This is something that, if I'm come to understood, is something that that Melville himself proposed as a cost saving measure. Like, cut the film in a way that you can eliminate the overall length of, of the film reel. And this way, making the film easier to make and cheaper to make and cheaper to project. The solution that many of the directors found for, for this was that they actually they, they shot the traditional scenes like they usually are shot. Like long takes of dialogue and, and stuff like this, but then in the edit they would once again to save uh, to save money and saving costs they would actually cut the empty space out between line deliveries and this is something that actually led into the jump cut nature of of french new wave so like i said it's it is both an artistic self-expression but it's also something that stemmed from the need to make the films as cheaply as possible. You have mentioned the jump cuts. Indeed, this this uh, was not something that was meant to be. It was 
because Jean-Luc Godard was told that his movie has to be shorter, there were a lot of these long takes without cuts from one single angle, obviously. And he was told that he has to cut this, whatever it was, about two hours of film to cut it into a 90-minute film. And in a, in a bit of a rebe rebellious way, he then, I suppose, kind of by accident, invented this jump cut way of doing things, which is now, of course, very popular all over YouTube. If you look at some kind of a blog videos, they do that to save people's time and just uh, cut out the awkward parts like we do in this podcast. Yeah, it also, especially today and especially in YouTube format, it also serves as a way to kind of wake up the, the uh, attention of the audience. Shake them up a bit so that they kind of stay focused. Because there is the the common tradition of, of human brain that it can really focus on on one thing for a, only for a few seconds. Like if you are, for example, if, if you are taking part in a lecture and you are listening to the lecturer, you can only truly follow him for a few seconds. I remember, was it three to eight seconds, which is the attention span? And after that, you temporarily lose the attention and you have to regain it again. Like your brains kind of have to get a new stimuli, which once again activates them fully to follow what is being said. And this is something that also the YouTube bloggers and vloggers face quite often in their work. And, and the jump cut nature is also something that is used to stimulate the brain. I noticed this problem with concentration when watching this film. It's more like you draw your attention into certain part of the film. Let's say it's the audio or it's some kind of a interesting pan that just happened. And then you're kind of processing that. And at the same time, there's a lot of dialogue coming and you're still processing the kind of artistic way of how this movie is delivering things that you sometimes have to push the rewind button and go back. This happens to me a lot. Maybe it's also how, how I'm kind of a built. I guess it's a bit of a kind of an autistic way of doing things. I might get my attention drawn very highly into something that has no importance whatsoever, but it is very exciting and interesting at that moment. And then you have to switch back to the main focus. I, I would also maintain that there is something where our job as podcast hosts doesn't really make us any any services because... no. Uh, uh, this podcast by nature also demands that whenever we watch a film that we are going to cover in the podcast, we kind of have to try to try to watch it as a film and at the same time try to watch it as a metaphor or, or find the symbolism or the meaning in individual artistic decisions that the film makes in, in one scene. And that uh, also kind of makes it maybe a bit harder for us to, to simply follow a movie because we try to kind of follow it on several levels at the same time which especially in in dialogue heavy film may actually turn against us and against the viewing experience something that also since we are talking about the technical aspect may have actually contributed in your hardships following the film is is the the fact that the film itself was heavily improvised mm. upon shooting. This is this is famous for the fact that the film was not actually really scripted. 
before before the shooting happened. Godard wrote the script as he was shooting it, kind of a day-by-day basis. Like today he would shoot something like 12 minutes of a movie and that's cut. That's all we are gonna do today and the next day he would write the next scene and then they would shoot that. And there also is a lot of improvisation uh, from from the actors and from the dialogue of the movie. Which, once again, if you are trying to follow a comprehensive narrative, like your traditional film, which has very tightly written, very, very thoroughly thought out dialogue, something that advances from line to line and from scene to scene as they traditionally do, that makes it even uh, also harder to follow something like Breathless, which relies so heavily on improvisation. Which makes me feel kind of bad towards this scriptwriter, because there was actually a written script long before Godard started doing something for the project, and he just completely skipped at least the dialogue part of it and uh, made it his own. And you can definitely tell that there's a lot of dialogue that just goes nowhere. You have a question made and there is an answer. Then you switch to another discussion topic and none of it really, a lot of it doesn't really mean anything. But there is this floating feeling that these are kind of actually real people. You, ha- you have a film that has a lot of dialogue that doesn't have any meaning. And then you have a structure that is up to your own interpretation. So it's perfect marriage really i would actually counter argue with you on on the dialogue and and claim that it actually has a hell of a lot of meaning throughout the film not in once again in a traditional sense like not in the in the sense that it means anything to the plot or or the narrative of the film this is something where where the french new wave difference quite heavily from from the traditional cinema uh, in in normal film, uh, your, your James Bonds and your Marvel movies, the dialogue is made and written in in service of the narrative, the plot. The dialogue is the key component that drives the plot forward and explains things to the characters and the audiences which are plot related. And this is something that that French New Wave quite often disregarded and and threw away. The French New Wave has a lot of these moments, for for example, where characters that have not been established or have, have been established as dead all of a sudden come back to the screen and, for example, word out a political statement. And the, all of that, you, you can clearly say that that doesn't have a narrative meaning within the film, but French New Wave... I would say more than about narrative. The new wave cinema was about self-expression and expression of your own identity, the identity of the film creators. This is something that we kind of have to talk even more when we approach what is French new wave and what were the new wave directors all about. But the dialogue of the film and quite often the quote-unquote nonsensical dialogue of the new wave cinema, even though it doesn't serve a narrative purpose, it does serve a purpose and meaning in the director's self-expression and his expression of his identity. And I would say that that is the main kind of a 
mm-hmm. maybe the most interesting part of the new wave movement, the way how the new wave directors try to use the film to explain themselves. Which begs follow-up questions. For example, this film is quite heavily tied into the innovations that the film had at its time. And it's uh, politically tied. It's very much of its time. You had World War II, you you had Vietnam, and through to all of these different influences, we, I believe, have something like breathless. And then you contrast it to today and what the film might mean you today. Is it more of a relic, a part of a history? We see a lot of these techniques that we have seen for years and years and years. And in that sense, does Breathless anymore have anything to offer to modern audiences except being an important part of the history of cinema? And you can find respect via that history. But without that context, it's hard to say why you would find anything out of it. I actually would say that Breathless still is extremely important piece of cinema and it has a lot to offer not in in the traditional level but once again as a form of a discussion on what is art what is artist and how you can express yourself through art i have run into this argument and this is also partly true for me it usually is is a transitional piece for those who approach it. Quentin Tarantino famously has said that he eventually grew out of Godard, and he spoke <laughs> Godard specifically. He didn't mean this in a respectful way, way but in, in a way of of transitioning. Like you you get into film, get into film theory and you wanna find what film can can be. And then you find the French New Wave, you find Godard, and you you stick with him up until the point where you have kind of also been able to form an artistic self. You have been able to identify to yourself what is your identity as an artist. And at that point, like Tarantino, you can move on from Godard. Either start you know, making films of your own or find the next director who can give you the next step, step which once again makes it clearer what I- who you are as an artist. Uh, to me, this is shown not as me actually ever moving past Godard or, or leaving Godard behind. I, I still stick with Godard, but in, in to me, it, it shows in the way how I... I consume Kodar's body of work. I I never actually watch that many Kodar films, and I do refuse to ever actually have anything like a really long Kodar marathon, where I would just in 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 a short amount of time I would just sit sit down and repeatedly watch different Kodar pictures. I will never do that. I will always be casual experiencer of Godard. Like I, I watch a bunch of films and every now and then I pick pick one or two movies from Godard. I watch those. Then I want once again watch a bunch of other stuff. And in some cases it might be even years until I once again watch some more picture uh, films from Godard or or revisit films that I have already seen. 
And I, w I would say that maybe this is the reason why, why I still do stick with Godar and haven't really moved on because I, I take these long pauses. But I, I would say that Godar is, is kind of a... First and foremost, to an artist, Godard is something, and, and French New Wave altogether, is something that you can use to study yourself and to try to define to yourself what is art, what can be art, what can be art's limitations and where cinema as an art form can succeed other art forms. And if, if you are interested in making the cinema of your own, making your own movies, Godard and the French New Wave movement may help you to, to explain to yourself what type of an artist you are. And that, that self-identity and finding that self-identity, if, if you want to be an artist, I would say might be one of the most important kind of a steps that you have to do take in order to become an artist. Outside of, outside of the, the self-expression and finding yourself through an art form, I would say that that Godard, Breathless, the French New Wave, they still also hold importance as a historical pieces and, and something that, that can explain and show to you how the directors of old and how pop culture has been redefined and how it has redefined itself. Because what the the key question that that French New Wave, at least in my opinion, ever was about was about identity, the identity of the directors and identity of French cinema. I understood what Tarantino said uh, regarding Godard, but uh, getting over Godard, I know that he has taken a lot of influences to his own work from Godard, so it sounded a bit off to me. In that way, of course, you have different sources of inspiration than you, as you said, you do your own body of work. And then you've, in that sense, I guess you are past Godard, that is not the anymore that thing that keeps on giving you new ideas. It's not your muse anymore, you go somewhere else. You are no longer dependent on, on Godard, on necessarily even about French New Wave. You you yeah. have you have found it you have exper experienced it and through that experience you have kind of a, a found a way to say as a filmmaker this is me this is the language and the film the type of film that I want to use and yeah and what I wanted to say about this kind of a perhaps ironic way that this movie is where you have dialogue that is just kind of happening in the moment and it's improvised and doesn't really link always to the, except in the way that you described it, it doesn't link to the overall plot of the film. It kind of draws you in to the film's world that you move from your couch into this other world. At least this happened to me. So in that sense, it's not the external experience that was intended here. But then it has these moments where you have the jump cuts where you have the fourth wall break and that becomes kind of the more of the external experience meaning when you listen to Bertolt Brecht, Bertolt Brecht however you pronounce that talking about this film and what the kind of ideas were going into the project was that 
you're not supposed to absorb the story in a psychological way that you are in there. But he wanted people to be thinking about the story. So maybe in a, that way, it's kind of a painting that you're observing. And what is happening in this world that has nothing to do with your world and is not your world, but some kind of a work of art. That's it. It is. It is. And that's very good observation. Because that's actually also one of the key components that the new wave was about. Traditionally, in film and in consumption of, of movies, we have this notion that film has to be real. Uh, film always is an illusion of reality. Yeah. It's, it's never real. It's a simulation that happens in very confined space. The rules and structures of the world uh, that the film depicts. But, and and kind of a, even in how much of that world you eventually get to see. Traditionally, when we watch movies, we we see this this kind of a, as as the we see the stronger illusion or or the stronger simulation as a good, and we define the film's quality depending on how strong that simulation is for us to experience how completely we believe that what we are perceiving is reality. And traditional cinema aims to make that reality as as strong as possible. This is what you face in 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 questions and statements how how the actor didn't feel real. How you couldn't buy into the character, how the editing grooves within the film dropped you, uh, dropped you out of the experience. And this, this is your traditional cinema. French New Wave, like you said, and draw the comparison into the painting, it deliberately tried to break and disrupt your ability to kind of get into the film. It, it wa- didn't want you to have that simulation experience and quote-unquote get lost in the film's world. It deliberately through editing, cutting and other choices, it tried to constantly remind the audience that what they are watching is not real and it's it's just cinema. Breathless does this, this kind of repeatedly with its jump cuts, with its closing shots, and and other film techniques that it uses. It draws very heavy contrast between what you sh- what what you see on the screen and what you can actually believe could anyway be part of any kind of a reality. The listener also could think about their movie viewing experiences at home or even in the cinema. When you've been at the cinema, when was the last time that you were actually so absorbed? into the film that you kind of transcend and move into that reality so strongly that you forget about everything around you. At least for me, that's starting to happen less and less for me. I'm always kind of too aware of my surroundings. Or maybe it's because I try to scrutinize the film more than somebody who hasn't kind of worked around the business a little bit I'm bound to have a different kind of experience as a cinema goer because of that, I believe. I remember when we were in the cinema school and, and or, or studying media and there would always be these reactions from the students that, oh, so that's how you do it. 
oh, this uh, lesson for this last half an hour just completely ruined cinema for me forever. All these kind of responses. And maybe that is something that, that I, I don't know if it ruined anything, but it just changed the experience forever. Yeah, and that's that's kind of a natural that it does that. It it happened eventually to me also to a very large extent. And I, I would say that stems from the fact that the more you study and analyze, and especially if you are being thought cinema and, and the technical qualities of the cinema, the more and more you start to kind of constantly see the technical aspects in what is being shown to you. And because of this, kind of getting into the movie, so to say, it becomes harder and harder. Because you yourself, you recognize camera angles, you recognize tracking shots, you recognize effects, you recognize screen comp compositions, and you approach all of those things with analytical mind. Like you break them down. And right. you, you see how it works or how it doesn't work. What you, you see a camera angle and then you see, okay, and you kind of understand at the same time that this is what the director is, is going for. He uses this technique, he uses this effect. There happens a switch between the camera angles to emphasize this feeling and... You you reach the end conclusion, it works or it doesn't work. And the more, more trained you become in doing this, the harder it actually becomes for you in, in any way, kind of get soaked into the film. Like you said, we break it down in a way into individual compartment. That's this is one shot. This is the next shot. And we see them more as uh, uh, separate elements, whereas... Uh, I believe how the typical moviegoer experiences things is that this is all like a, it uh, goes from this shot to the next because you know it's it, it, it like it would be actually happening from beginning to end right there. Yep, and and, and that 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 is kind of a occupational hazard on of everyone who really works around around cinema or I, I would say any any media of art. And that begs the question then, is it even worth it? At least maybe that's why we like kind of artistic cinema, or maybe that's why we enjoy New Wave more than possibly the average cinema goer, because, because we have gone to this different experience where I don't even know, Henrik, anymore if it's worth to give us this kind of a this transcendence into this different reality, transition inside the world of the film. Is it even worth it to try it for us? Or maybe you should just play a little more with the material? Um, it's, it's kind of a yes and no question. And I, I, At least for me, it depends from film to film. I yeah. still, at least at times, can, can still get get kind of a swoop by the film and get lost within within the illusion that that the film tries to tries to give me it it doesn't happen always and it happens less than it used to when I, when I was younger but i i still at times i get short moments of that experience 
I actually value that experience still quite a lot, and because because of that, I I would maintain that that trying to achieve that level of of illusion still actually has merit, and You're it, right, it yeah. still has value. At the same time, however, yeah, sure, there is the counter argument that that aiming for the illusion, especially if if it doesn't work for you, it can easily lead into the film not being as experimental and as interesting as it could be. Because when, when you are trying to be sold the illusion, more often than not, you just kind of fell into the trappings of using the old, old ways of filmmaking. And, and the traditional way of filmmaking, the, the tried and true pattern that works for the most of the audiences. And you just try to reuse, reuse that structure in, instead of really toying around with the media and uh, toying around with the film. The more experimental you try to be with your movie, the more you risk that your movie being alienating to the audiences and them, uh, and the audience members not getting into the illusion. Exactly, if the illusion is your goal. Uh, I think there is merit to both of these ways, obviously. If you want to maintain the illusion as best as possible, then you're better into following kind of the unwritten rules of cinema. Keep the eye line at the uh, same level when you move to the next shot or keep this shot size instead of something more experimental because the audience notices that and then kind of gets out of the experience in a way. Yeah, but that of course also begs the question that what actually is more important and which style actually gives you more insight into the creator of of the movie like if you contrast for example something highly recorded but one could easily argue very traditional cinema experience a movie from jj abrams or steven spielberg or or the alike if if you take a movie from them and then contrast that to something that is highly artistic which one actually is more important because spielberg gives you more of the crafted illusion and more of the traditional way of doing cinema and the artistical director on the other hand more likely makes a film that you really don't get get as closely into which is more alienating to you than than something that spielberg does but at the same time does it actually tell more about that director? Like, do you get more insight to the mind that made the film? I think it's possible to leave your mark very efficiently in both approaches. As Spielberg, of course, he, he is not an experimentator. He is a person who is extremely... He, he is the kind of the genius of the, the traditional way of making films, which has a clear beginning, middle and an end. He's a master of his craft in, in that space. French New Wave, though, let's uh, talk a little bit about that. So it's a movement which is often seen as a kind of the opposing force of traditional filmmaking. And it has a lot of experimentation. It has a very much a documentaristic style. And it, it was a very influential movement of the history of cinema because it started to break these structures and kind of liberalize the way of storytelling. It's often fragmented, discontinuous in editing, has a lot of long takes. There is uh, objective and subjective realism 
kind of brought into people's attention the term author, this kind of a people who seemingly has a full control in artistic way of the entire production. Yeah, there there is a whole lot of stuff that actually goes into in into French New Wave. And when it comes to authorism and the author theory, unfortunately stemmed from, from the New Wave movement. You can also ask the hard question that was the New Wave, New wave movement at least partly a disservice to, to cinema? Not, not, not the movies themselves, not the mo- movement itself, but the heavy, kind of the, the heavy rise that author theory had largely thanks to the the new wave movement author theory more or less existed already before before new uh, french new wave it it was ever, ever so often brought up and discussed in in other circles but New wave movement perhaps is what w- was the thing that made the author theory really peak and gave the theory its breakthrough eventually and made it one of the mainstream film theories that even today is is being taught in 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 film schools and simply on on the grounds of giving a foothold to author theory there I have to kind of ask. Was that actually a disservice? I would say that no, because at its core, it's allowing you to to tell your own stories in a, in, in your free artistic way. Freedom of expression is in this medium as much as it might be in paintings. In, in a way, yeah. And then on the other hand, the whole author theory essentially is just, well, at, at least in my opinion, it mostly just is ego stroking the director's dick, so to say. It's it's kind of a putting on pedestal, a bunch of cigarette smoking white guys, especially if they happen to be French, kind of iconizing them, making yeah. them the larger than life creators, the authors, as the theory states. Right, right, right. But uh, it bears to remember that, for example, Jean Luc Godard, I don't know. The other guys, how how they kind of internalize that uh, experience of being a famous uh, movie maker like uh, Francois Truffaut. But uh, Jean Luc Godard wanted to get away from this iconizing and idolizing. And nowadays, as far as I know, he's very much a recluse and stays out of the spotlight. And also joined some projects under some pseudonym or wasn't named at all, but he wanted to be in part a part of some productions, but not be n- known that he is there. Yeah, he did. And once again, it, I, I need to stress out that when it comes to the rise of the author theory, it, like it, it's a mismatch. That there's a lot of fingers to point out on who whose blame that is. A lot of those fingers perhaps point to America, of all goddamn places, once, once again. It's it's not so much simply the theory itself or any one individual statement given in relationship to that theory that really bugs me. It's just that other theory, it when hold up on onto high regard, can actually lead you into some pretty problematic waters. Hmm. Pretentiousness. 
pretentiousness is is one. The other is actually just sweeping everybody else who is involved in in filmmaking under the rock. Because other theory is about nothing except the director. And film, by its nature, is a collaborative art. In making a film, a hell of a lot of people take part in. There's the scriptwriter, there are the actors, there's the cinematographer, there's everybody who works on the set, the set designers, all these people have part in, in making the film. And I would say that all of those people, also as individuals, have a part to play in how the film eventually shapes out. Like, they they can strengthen the director's vision or they can somehow present their own vision. Sometimes even pissing in the, in, in, on the feet of director's vision. I would say that the biggest difference between traditional cinema making and this kind of author product such, such as Breathless is that the goal in the other, for example, your average horror film, whatever, like that, or your blockbuster summer action film like Mission Impossible, there the main goal is not artistic, it's just to make the... Every, it's, its point is to make money for the company that is going to be producing it or whichever the case, to make just cash. And for an artistic uh, product such as Breathless, not to say that Mission Impossible isn't artistic, but but having such of a control, it contributes to the fact that there is going to be a smaller audience because you're not you're not pleasing the traditional construction of a film for general moviegoers. You're doing some niche thing. In these kind of cases, you don't necessarily care if it's going to be successful or not. That's the different way of approaching the medium medium of film. There's this these artistic niche people, and then there is this who are in it to make money. Uh, uh, and, yeah, yeah, that it is. But it is important to remember that making an artistic film and the author theory are two separate things. To, to, to kind of uh, make this more, to, to explain this further, I, I feel that we kind of have to delve deeper into, into the where and why the French New Wave originally started and, and what actually author theory it is as a, as a film theory. Uh, before you continue on that, yeah, I was supposed to also touch on the other difference, which is a kind of a tougher not to crack when you have the traditional filmmaking in a way the director always holds uh, an amazing amount of artistic and frankly directorial control of the entire production but where it differs there I guess the most is that the the producer and the uh, company funding the project has more control than you would have in, in a what is called an Kind of authoristic production and 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 you could even question which one of them is would be if you can make that distinction which one of these approaches would be better you have more collaborative effort in the traditional filmmaking but at the same time maybe your artistic direction gets diluted and especially gets diluted when there's somebody like Harvey Weinstein at least that when I was also if I could give kind of a personal experience on that at film school. I wanted 
uh, to make some kind of a, when I think about it, some kind of an author product. And I think that's only simply stems from the fact that I, I want this film to go somewhere instead of there being five or six or ten people collaboratively deciding on what this film is going to be about. And then when it's finally produced, it happens that it's not really about anything anymore. Yeah, uh, when it comes to... Or I would say that is that is case by case yeah. situation. Usually in in film and especially us snotty film critics and podcasters, we we have this narrative: the director is good and the producer is bad. Grrr, evil producer fucks up the director's vision. And yeah. Yeah, to to many cases that actually is the narrative. That there are a lot of films which has suffered, and a lot of directors who have suffered under uh, under the dictatorship of bad producers. And th- there is also some notion to the fact that director maybe looks at the film more artistically than the producer, who often are some board members. And and businessmen who who look at the bottom line and try to establish the best possible profit margin and the the studio system producers model of filmmaking has led into many problematic and often film hurting practices like like test screening. And demands to the director, you must have these actors in your film because they draw in crowds. You must have this much tits in your film for the teenage crowds. You can't have all this high quality a- violence in your film because we have to be PG-13. All of that is quite typical. But at, at the same time, it's not. I I would say it's it's not the default case. It's it's not always the case, and there are also examples of many good collaborations between producer and director, where producer has been able to to give director new ideas to help the director move forward with his film. At times, keeping the director in check and giving director quote unquote reality check. And to make it obvious to the director that where he's going is the wrong way, and if if you take this ro- road, then the film will be better. There is also the unfortunate case of of the directors having kind of a, a quote unquote blank check, and the horrible misfires where that can lead you. I I mean there there was the Hollywood golden age. I. If I remember correctly, the term when when the studio system worked in the way that there were a bunch of these high quality directors who who got all the money they just asked as long as they just produced the film, and where that led, it almost bankrupted the whole Hollywood because there were the all the directors were running wild with their checkbooks, making these larger than life things, uh, burning. Tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars into into something that is only on the screen for for fifteen seconds, and the Hollywood system almost collapsed under this expenditure. So 
I see the director-producer relationship as something that is is it is it is a case by case situation. You 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 get really horrible producers who just butcher the film and com- completely rob it from any artistic possibilities and even from the possibility of the film being good. And then they test screen it to the exactly the wrong audience. And the film gets chopped up to pieces because the test screening audiences didn't like it. But that's not always the case. And I would say that even the even the systems that they often use, like test screenings, they ain't necessarily inherently bad or unworkable formulas. It just more often than not, in my opinion, comes down in the uh, how that tool is being used. Yeah, it, it 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 gets a little hazier there, and I'm all for a certain amount of col- collaboration. Of course, in any production, you have to have that. And then there is the thing of the boredom of the formulaic modern cinema. For most of the time in the theater, I feel very bored nowadays. I feel bored because we have fallen into this formulaic elements that you just know to expect. Now the formula is controlling the film more more than the film is controlling the formula. And I think we need to break out of that more and more. This is so subjective. But when people know what to expect, and if that goes on for the next 50 years with the same formula, it's starting to just make people outright bored. Well, sure. I I hope you like ramblings in in screaming bird voices because this the the whole mess of uh, of of French New Wave and the other theory it actually take us a hell back to be more precise it take us into takes us into 1946 and the place is French it's the end of the Second World War and coming from the from the war and being once being occupied by by the Nazis, France is now facing a small war debt of two billion dollars. Something that French really are not that interested in in paying. So Leon Blum travels to the US to meet James Burns in order to renegotiate the France's to uh, war debt, and they do come into an agreement. Where the the deal is that France is being forgiven the war debt, but in return they have to open their cultural pro- uh, borders to American pop culture, more notably to uh, American cinema. Up until this point, France had hold very high quotas on the number of American films that they would allow to be shown within France yearly. This was done in order to preserve and protect the France, uh, French cinema and, and French filmmaking as they were afraid that just simply allowing American cinema to be screened in France that would lead into oversaturation of the film market by the American Hollywood studio system. And that's exactly what happened. Like, immediately after the bans were lifted, Hollywood just stormed into the new market. And American cinema was all over French movie theaters. And this is important in relationship 
of, of the French New Wave movement. Because this is actually the cultural grounds from where the New Wave directors, the, and more specifically the Cashier du Cinema directors, Godard, Romer, mm. Truffaut, and Rivet, all, all came from. Like, this was the cultural landscape that they absorbed. And the movement kind of uh, originally, at, at, at least as far as I've understood, started with the criticism toward, uh, towards the French cinema and the way how, how in French cinema was ma- traditionally made. The traditional French movies. And this was a, kind of maybe the hardness was kicked in in 1948 by Alexandre Astruc Astruc's essay Camera Stylo uh, Camera as a Pen where he argued that to a film director the the camera is as much of a way of a self self expression as a pen is to a writer a novelist a novelist can through his book a novelist can really express who he or she is through the style of prose that he he creates and and the book overall. Astruc argued that with camera the director has the exact same opportunity and exa- the exact same same power power. And Truffaut later on went onwards from this by writing an essay where he attacked the traditional way of French filmmaking, the traditional quality, as he put it, of, of French, French cinema, which he felt was bloated over expensive adaptations of French novels, as most of the French movies had been a film adaptations of, of French literature. And Truffaut felt that this actually celebrates more the writers than the directors. Then, uh, through the, the uh, through all these films, the novel is held into a high regard, and and with the novel, the writer is given a pedestal, and the director is just some some chump that you pay pay some money to to film the story. He is more of more or less just a faceless figure in in the shadows. And and the writer of the novel is the one who gets all the credit and the accolades. And in in many way, the French New Wave aimed to iconoclasm and the destruction of of established icons and the traditionality that they felt was going on in in French movies. And they they the source that they looked up to was actually the American cinema. And more more than that, the more maybe the maybe the B grade American films where they felt that that was kind of the 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 hallmark, the distancing hallmark from the way how the film traditionally was done in France. The, 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 it was more about the directors filming their own material, filming the scripts than simply making film adaptations of, of the books. And in my opinion, French New Wave has always been a movement of conflict. Uh, of conflict. And the, the conflict has been 
at the same time attacking the 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 traditional French filmmaking, but also trying to re-establish and rebuild the identity of French cinema. Because even though Truffaut and, and the likes looked into American cinema, you know, in an, as an as an escape route from from the traditionality of of French movies, they also never really embraced the American cinema either. They they felt that where Americans made more films about scripts and and not so much simply just cinematic adaptations. The Hollywood movies also weren't really artistic. They they weren't, weren't pieces of art, but instead just studio-made systematic products made for the silver screen. And in in my opinion, this is kind of the driving conflict that uh, into which the French New Wave tries to answer. And they they try to find kind of the balancing ground between these two ways of of making films. They they want to liberate the French cinema with the American influence, but at, at the same time make movies that are most specifically French. And and this way kind of reshape the the artistic national identity. Of, of French movies. And I, I feel that this is also the driving point and, and the main point that Breathless t- tries to make. Breathless to me is most definitely a film about identity. And it, it's uh, about this conflicting nature of two identities. Like how do you craft a French identity when you are under the heel of an of an American influence. And this is the main question that the film's main character, Michelle, tries to answer, and in the end, perhaps actually finally manages to answer. And when it comes to to the author theory itself, and the problem I have it, like why it's diff- important to different author theory from 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 artistic uh, filmmaking is, is that like like I said author theory had existence way before French New Wave but where author theory maybe peaked was during the French New Wave and most specifically when when part of the way how you make films. And and what you en- emphasize in in your films, the way how the film ki- kind of looks and feels, and uh, this is something where where Saris argued that Americans are actually the best of the best, and and the American directors are better than than well yeah, directors coming from any other country. And uh, the final is interior interior meaning that the director has to have in in his body of work. And interior meaning is is a more abstract term, uh, and it aims to talk about how the director projects himself through his works. It's not quite the vision of the director, 
uh, or it's not quite the uh, vision that the director projects, nor quite his attitude towards life. But it's more. It was more of a tension between director's personality and his material, like kind of a the director trying to say something much more deeper than what cinema as an art form actually allows him to express. It's it's director pushing against the boundaries and telling about his self and his worldview uh, through the act of pushing against that boundary. And Saris argued, and the, and through uh, through Saris the more globalized auteur theory argued that through through the director's body of work you can find a pattern that that emerges and that will tell the audiences who the director is and what he believes in and what are his values. And this theory was attacked very heavily. For example, the film critic Pauline Kiel, who argued that that Saris completely is missing the mark and the theory is absolute bullshit and went on stating that it's good that Saris simply stopped with, with three categories and didn't continue onwards from there because it, had he done that, we all would truly be in hell. And Pauline Kale was really vicious in his attacks against the author theory. Later on, even the the head of cashier, the magazine Cashiers du Cinema and its founder Andrew Pazin even attacked the author theory and felt that that the theory itself is maybe a bit too self-congratulating towards the directors and maybe too simplistic. And those are kind of my main problems with the author theory. The, the fact that it kind of a, even icon, iconizes the directors and pushes everybody else who takes part in, in the making of, of the film into the background as non-important elements and also, also the fact that I also too feel that it is tightly stricken with the with the author theory can lead you into into over simplistic waters. Yeah, like w- w- when it comes to finding a pattern in in director's body of work, certainly those patterns do emerge. But sticking uh, too strictly with the author theory easily leaves you leads you into waters where firstly you give too much credit to the director even with his later works even if they don't actually anymore contribute to those three qualifications the technical competence noticeable pattern and interior meaning like let's say you you have a director who makes really good films and you really like them, and they, they have all these three aspects. And so, stemming from these films, you qualify that director as an auteur. He, he meets the qualifications. And then something happens, and the later films of the director starts to be more and more dog shit. Something that happened for Coppola, for example. Uh, if you stick too strictly with the author theory, it easily blinds you to this transformation and and the decrease in, in the director's quality. You you still see 
the, the director on the same pedestal where you originally raised him based on the author theory because author theory itself is kind of a it's it's not necessarily that forgiving to the changes in quality when it comes to the director's body of uh, director's films because the author theory essentially is all about the director and the same thing goes for example with the interior meaning and changes in that like like a director can make many make films where where his his worldview and his attitudes change from movie to movie. Michael Bay is like a really great example of this. Mm. An, an auteur, a, a filmmaker that re, does qualify and and fulfill all all the all, all three characteristics of of an auteur according to the theory, but whose films and and ideas and what he says through his films are kind of a... They are switching kind of a schizophrenically from film to film, especially once we reach the Transformers era of, of, of his quote-unquote cinema. And that's kind of, kind of a... Why I'm hesitant I, to... Mm. Uh, actually really celebrate the outdoor theory. And I never made actually the point that, well, I don't think you made the insinuation, but I didn't make the point that there would necessarily be any need for a theory. I just made the point that after this French new wave or during it, this author theory and authors as a concept came into the world of film. Yeah. At, uh, and, and, at, yeah. at least in the big way. The author, the theory, or what is said to be the theory, it's more of a collection of observations of what somebody has done and what worked in the cinema or what might work. So these are rather like observations uh, or maybe kind of a rule book for some kind of a traditional cinema making or guidelines. Guidelines is the word. They're not rules. They're guidelines and just observations. That's how I would view it. When it comes to Breathless, at least, there remains the question if this film is really how the director wants to show his artistic vision, I would say yes. But maybe like 50% of this product is also what I see as a protest. It's a protest against the traditional French filmmaking and uh, just breaking the rules is also, it's kind of, a, I would say, a kind of a 50-50 split of whether it's an art form or it's, it's just some kind of a statement to the audience. And that's something that is quite traditional to Godard. Blurring the line between, is, is his film an, an art piece? Is it, is it even really a movie? Like, or quote-unquote movie? Or... Is it is it some kind of a political or artistic statement? Definitely political when you get deeper into the rabbit hole with uh, Godard and Marxist theories. Yeah, it, it is. But once again, with, with that notion, I I have to stress breathless. Once again, is is entry point Godard. Yeah, it's it's the one that is perhaps the least kind of a least political, least statement like. In the end, it's most movie, 
the, the rabbit hole with which Godar it just continues from Breathless. It gets even more into statements in his later films. Quentin Tarantino has also stated that the Richard Cheer American sort of a remake of Breathless from was it 1983 is also one of his favorite movies. I personally haven't seen it. I watched the trailer and maybe you can expand on that if you have seen the product. I myself I never actually checked it out. Yeah, but, but it, what... it, it, it's just one of those films that I never actually just watched. What what an interesting concept uh, taking this kind of a author French new wave cinema piece and then making a well Richard Cheer what looks like to be very much an action movie of the general Hollywood mill out of that. So definitely have to check it that check that out Maybe. at some point. Maybe yeah, maybe that even can be actually a, a a statement from from the director of the film, because Breathless, at at least in my opinion, this is my take on the film. Breathless is a very hard statement against America or American cinema. So if you then take take the original Godard picture and make an American remake about it, you Americanize original film maybe that also can be a statement against Godard's statement and yeah. the the anti-american message of of Godard's film and it's easy to see what, how you could make an exciting action action piece out of the elements of the original breathless and do something well perhaps equally ex- exciting in a different way out of it Yeah, the first step would be to put some action into the film. <laughs> All right, maybe the scene by scene. Oh, yeah. I I, I guess we ha- do it in a traditional format. Oh, I wouldn't hold my breath. I might just, just leave this desk and be kind of um, improvise and just leave this podcast. We, we we just stop talking and the rest, rest of the episode is just, just blank noise. Yeah, but uh, okay. So the opening scene, then, which I have listed as the "after all, I'm an arsehole" scene, starts with this interesting piece of dialogue, which you could then make the case is uh, supposed to be some kind of a ending piece of dialogue for Michelle, but it's put in the beginning. But who uh, knows? I, I I've lost the meaning of this particular piece of dialogue. Well, dialogue and scene perhaps as separate entities that also work together. The I would say, like mentioned, my coming to point into Breathless is that the film is a study of an identity, both Michel's and and French cinemas, and it's an attempt to establish a national artistic identity under the shadow of Hollywood machine and. Through the through Michel, the film tries to argue that Hollywood identity comes of satirical and dumb, and you shouldn't actually dwell too deeply into American identity, or at least try to import that identity into your own national cinema. To me, this is kind of what starts happening in the in the opening of the film, because that the first establishing shots of of Michelle you you have these 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 shots of Michelle kind of a uh, he he has his hat partly covering his eyes and you he's holding this his his head back 
kind of a forcibly relaxed way. And it looks really dumb. And then then he does this very clear, like he he does this movement where he he crosses his lips with his uh, with his thumb, and that also comes off extremely forced. To me, that is actually kind of kind of the main point that or, or the introduction of the main point the main point of establishing your identity because what michelle is actually doing in in his establishing is he's mimicking and at the same time he's mo- uh, unconsciously mocking the traditional poker style like like that thump thing that he does repeatedly in the in the movie that's that's a trademark Humphrey Bogart element or move that he did quite often in his films. Uh, same goes with Michelle, the way how Michelle stands and uh, how he hold, he, holds his head back, tilted backwards and the way how he dress. Like Michelle is trying to emulate an American film gangster and he tries to be like Bogart. But when Michelle does all that, it comes off as as stupid and comedical. What Michelle is, is he's a caricature. And what Bogart would do quite, quite swiftly, and in a way that you don't really notice it, like, like the thumb thing, when Michelle does it, it comes off forced. During Breathless 1960 or 1959, when this film was filmed, was that already when the American or the Hollywood film floodgates have had been open and the restrictions lifted in France, or was it after this film? It was before before the film was a uh, film came out. Okay, and we can and make there... the case that the French New Wave is uh, heavily inspired still by the American influences. So, is it really a parody of uh, Humphrey Bogart? Or is it kind of a hat tip for Humphrey Bogart? Uh, to else? me, it, it, it is a parody because it, on intention, it looks so goddamn ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It starts uh, also, there's a lot of ladies that this uh, character seems to know around the town. The first suggestion to me is that this, uh, this uh, Michelle character doesn't know the lady that is kind of a couple of meters away from him, but then it's established that they actually know each other, which came to as a surprise to me. And uh, then we also show the character trait of him as not being very friendly towards people, taking care of his own end. And that also, once again, are some of the trademarks of American gangster cinema, American detective cinemas, where you have the suave playboys who have girls all over uh, all, all over them and every single female is falling head over heels for them and at the same time you have this aspect of them basically treating other people like like crap for, for example to, to stick with bogey and and his films uh, bogart made a hell of a lot of detective films where he played the gruff and Goff. New York City detective, or, or insert city here, detective. <laughs> they had the trench coat and the pistol. And every single fil- film, he gets a lady at least some point, and most often than not, 
in in the course of the of the films he actually also hits the lady at some point like that is that there's the poker backhand that comes into play liar yeah precisely that and there is also that 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 rough motions that he has with, with ladies uh, also sometimes combined with something that would lead into a romantic gesture like for example kissing like in 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 his films Bogart might first hit the lady then grab her arms and rough her, rough her a bit and that would eventually lead into a into a kiss for reasons never have become clear to me but that's pretty much also how Michelle tries to be throughout the film in in his kind of a this this his disrespectful attitude towards, towards other characters of the movie. There is a very big element here that I noticed throughout the film. I'm sure that you noticed it too. It's the way that the characters are unimpressed by practi- practically everything that happens. First indication is in the car when we see Michelle playing with the gun. We do not know exactly if he's seeing the gun here for the first time, or if he just found it. Nevertheless, he seems not to be completely imp- or in any way impressed by the fact that it is a dangerous, lethal weapon, which could also then make the case that the, his character is a kind of a gangster who just kind of is the kind of person who does this every day. Or he has assumed the Bogart character so deep in him that uh, it's, it's kind of a, some kind of cosplay and... Uh, he just goes along with it in this psychotic manner. I, I don't know. I, I took, the, took it that Michelle was actually excited to find the gun. Like, uh, the the car Michelle is, is driving that has the gun in the glove box, that is a car that Michelle steals. So yes. he can't know that the gun is there. More notably, Michelle steals an American car from from an American officer. Yes. So that there is also once again the sticking with with the American things. He wants to drive American, and then he finds the gun and he kind of immediately starts to play with it. He he points other cars and people with it and goes bang bang bang, kind of like a child when he finds a new toy. And the way how I took it is that that to Michel, the revolver is the final element that he needs to finish his transformation into what he tries to be. An American Bogart-esque film gangster. I will have a better examples of this. What I mentioned here that the people are rather unimpressed or they don't show their emotions. They don't have reactions to important plot points in any way but okay we will get to this but uh, then he just randomly seems to shoot the cop with the least amount of pictures or shots possible of course you know there's the gunshot but then there are like one two three four shots from different angles and we basically just see a gun that doesn't even really fire but there is the inserted sound effect and then we see the cop falling into the bushes and the next shot is absolutely comedy gold because th- then it's just kind of a full shot of 
Michelle running away in the fields. <laughs> uh, so they're doing this with the least amount of shots possible. Either it's because they didn't have enough material, or it was some kind of an artistic decision, or it was supposed to be parodic, goofy and funny. I, I took it as an artistic decision where this is one of the moments where the anti-American cinema stands of Godard kind of starts to peak. It, it this, already peaks in, in how goofy Michelle is when he tries to copy American cinema, but also in the way how the film frames its action. Because this moment, Michelle is shooting the cop, is it, it's kind of a traditional American gangster moment. That's actually the moment where in, in Hollywood crime film you would get your money shot. They, they would use wide shots. To really showcase you, you know, the the action taking place. Well, Max in medium shot, Michelle, that's that's how Americans would do it. But what Godard does, he kind of a bastardizes the whole thing. Right? Like, yeah. He, he, he uses unnecessary extreme close-ups on precisely the wrong things. He he show there's a close up on Michelle's face, then there is a close up on his his hand, then there's a close up on on the re, uh, revolver's wheel, and then there is a close up on the barrel, and you don't even see the muzzle flash. You just have the the stock uh, the sound effect, which also maybe is a bit out of sync to, yes, to the image. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's kind of a part of the artistic uh, freedom that is wanted to be depicted here. But uh, this police shooting also contributes, in my opinion, to the way that uh, everything seems inconsequential for Michel. He shoots a character, then just uh, happily jogs off the scene, and we don't see his expression. It just seems to be some kind of a game for him. Yeah, yeah, kind of. And that's... It, it's hard to say how much that is Michelle and how much that is Michelle, once again, trying to ape Hollywood gangsters who would do these kind of things yeah. constantly and never be troubled by any of the violence ever again. Like, I, I just, may, may, yeah. maybe it bothers Michelle more than it would bother a Humphrey Bogart character because most likely Humphrey Bogart character would have simply driven off from the scene and not abandon the car because running away is kind of a it's it's hard work especially if, if you are far away from civilization it takes time and it's all, all around bitchy thing to do yeah the laughter is the reaction that they got out of me when you have this uh police killed and then in the next shot he's just jumping around in the fields with this uh kind of a, a happy music going in the background next scene here Michelle gets to Paris and the whole mission of his is to convince Patricia to join him and he has already as we have seen in the previous scene when he's driving the car he has already decided this before he arrives to Paris that he's going to get the car uh, he's going to get the money and then he's going to get the lady if gods are willing and so it in that sense it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that he just killed the police Perhaps the police already are after him before killing the police. Well, they evidently are. But in what capacity? 
is that the capacity that he's worried about that he wants to go so badly to Italy in the first place? I suppose yes. Maybe it's it's kind of hard to say because Michel throughout the film seems to treat the police as kind of a buffoons or bumbling yeah. idiots. And in Michel's defense, for a large part, they kind of are. Like what, what you see the police side and, and the investigation or of, of Michel shooting the cop and the police trying to hunt down Michel none of it actually comes off that professional. Like the cops no. for the most part in the movie are almost goofs. And interestingly, what definitely seems like it the, the character of Michel is buying a lot of newspapers supposedly different newspapers, and reading them on several occasions. Most of the running time, I would say that he has his eyes on newspapers. If he's not smoking, he's, he would be kind of a, of his day, his day's version of an internet addict, because the guy is constantly trying to read. More than likely, if there is any indication of the police killing that he just did, so he does care what is happening around him. And steals the key from the counter to enter into Patricia's hotel room. And tries to steal money from her, by the way. Next we have the cafe and again reading a newspaper. And also cleans his shoes with newspapers. Showing kind of a lack of respect towards the newspaper. And then just throws it away. Arrives to another lady of the film. The lady's name, as far as I know, was never mentioned on the film. But it's a lady. No questions asked. And she works at a TV station. Uh, and Mr. Wannabe Bogart asks, uh, are you still making films? She answers, no, you gotta sleep around. And here we get to the other uh, prevalent theme of this film. The uh, 60s open, extremely open level of sexuality before people practically knew what a sexual disease is. And uh, I believe this is what kept... Uh, sexual encounters so open in that culture. I haven't really explored this much at all, but that's the vibe that I'm getting, that everybody was fucking around in these liberal times, and then we had the HIV-AIDS crisis, and things got back into something aching to more traditional relationships. With the dialogue of the film, you of course also have to, have to remember that Breathless is kind of notorious for its English subtitles, which is something that we too also have to use in, in the podcast. Au contraire, mon frère. Right. No, oh, I can't speak French. Go ahead. And the fact that there are like two or three, three, three if I remember correctly, different English subtitles for the film. And people have been complaining about all of them. This is the, the most telling the, the most drastic moment where, where the most of the the complaints have been stemming from is the very final lines of the mm. movie uh, because of this nature because of the the different subtitles and and the fact that people think that none of the subtitles are up to par with the original French dialogue there of course also something we must stress is is that there may be aspects in, in the film, especially in the dialogue apartment, that we kind of get wrong, or which we end up missing because yeah. of the subtitling. Regardless, 
this uh, film very much suggests that that these people are very sexually open. At, at, at least the lady and and Michelle. Now we see Patricia for the first time in this uh, kind of a, kind of an iconic, legendary shot, kind of a full shot where we see both of them just walking on the streets. First, they are the backside to the screen, and then they turn around in the intersection, and they're facing us. And this shot goes on for quite a long time, no cuts for a while. And interesting dialogue. I mean, you have a lady from Americas, which was the case in real life for this uh, actress. And there's a weird part of dialogue where she asks, what is uh, Shams or Shams Elysee? Well, are you kidding me? You can't live in Paris and not know that. Anybody knows Shams Elysee. It's the kind of a main shopping street. A lot of interesting uh, improvised dialogue that I see here. For example, quote, you're angry I left without a goodbye. No, I was furious because I was sad. And uh, I kept wondering what does she go to hand for Michelle when they are about to separate. She runs back to him and hands something and then they share a kiss. Was that then the uh, 500 or some kind of a money? I have no idea. Yeah, hard to say. But that's the nature of the film. Just uh, try to figure it out for yourself. More legendary lines. Have you anything against the youth? Sure do. I prefer old people. And there's also different versions of translations of this line. I don't know what it's saying in your subtitles. Yeah. Uh, in in my copy of the film, it's translated, do you support youth? And okay. Michelle remarks something like, no, I like the old. Yeah. But so, something important to note, Uh, with with the lady uh, asking, do you support youth or do you do you have something against youth? Is is that this once again? Th- this is actually one of the more uh, the more statement like moments from Godar in the in the film. The piece of paper that the lady is is handing to Michelle Michelle is is a magazine. Uh, more specifically, as as you can see, it's Cashier du Cinema, a famous French cinema magazine for which Godard and, and Truffaut and Rivet and uh, and the likes did wrote and kind of where they through which they originally met and and formed their ranks. Kind of a, the magazine that gave birth to the new wave movement. So. The question that the scene itself kind of proposes is that it is about cinema itself. Like, do you support the youth? Meaning, are you with the young new wave directors? And <laughs> what Michelle gives is similarly to be taken statement. In 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 my copy, it's no, I like old, and and this is kind of a Michelle presenting. Someone who supports the old masters of French cinema, the traditional French French movie making, especially in Michel's case, most likely also the old and traditional Hollywood cinema. And there are these uh, quite random occurrences that appear, but then are referred to in the later parts of film, like this uh, random person lying on the street, supposedly dead. We don't really know what happened to this guy, but he's lying there. Michel does the cross sign and just leaves the scene in an inconsequential, not very impressed fashion. Like, let's just continue reading the newspaper. 
which says that police has identified the killer. And we have the scene of uh, Mr. Tomalchov in what uh, looks to be a hotel. And he is somehow connected to this person that uh, Michelle is trying to track down, who owes him money so that he can leave, in to, leave to Italy. But the relations of the characters are never really established or dwelled into that deeply in, in the film. But No, no what? But, what, but what is established is that even though Michelle and Patricia have, at least in the film's universe, not spent too much time together. Well, obviously they have had some meetings before, because if we are to believe uh, Patricia's uh, statement to police later that they have met something like five, six times, if this is indeed true, then they have had some meetings. But I found it interesting that this uh, hotel clerk at the desk is... Uh, has noticed that they have been together and asks about the lady. And later in the film, they seem to be terribly surprised. I guess they do react to something in this film. Terribly surprised that somebody has ratted them out. So yeah, we have just a, a drop a lot of scenarios in this dialogue with uh, Mr. Tomalchov and a lot of names. One of the names is Antonio Berruti, which is the character that that uh, Michelle will be chasing for the entirety of the film now. And uh, there's also police looking for M- Michel Pekar, uh, and also he has the name of Laszlo Kovacs, the alias. We also have the dead-on, no questions asked, uh, simple, simple and clear statement that this is indeed a Humphrey Bogart type of character that he is trying to represent here because Michel goes to Champs-Élysées and sees the poster of his idol bogey. This is kind of a that the eyeing of of Bogart is kind of a, also telling or tell us a lot about Michelle. At first, it it more strictly established that it is Bogart that Michelle is emulating, but it also showcases what the relationship between Bo- Michelle and and Bogart is. Because the first thing you the Michelle sees is is the large poster of of the harder they fall which has Bogart's face like giant size Bogart's face and that's being raised up high on on the wall and Michel himself is is down on the street level looking upwards to the the poster so Michel is is in in Bogart's shadow he's kind of trying to be a Bogart in the same vein that a young man today could try to em- em- emulate Bond. Just, I, I, we, we have had mm. a, a visitor from, from the suits of Sa- James Bond on, on our Bond episodes, which also is kind of in, in the same vein, like taking clothing tips from James Bond and taking kind of a, a presence... Uh, trying to take an identity. How do you uh, hold yourself when when you are outside? And how do you talk? How do you act? What are your values? Take, taking them from, for example, from Bond, or like in Michelle's mm. case, from Bogart. But at the same time, it's best to remember that this, of course, this is not Bogart. Michelle is not trying to copy Bogart. Michel can't even know Bogart. What he can know is Bogart's characters 
And that's what Michel is trying to copy. He's trying to copy an ideal of, of Bogart because he doesn't and can't know the real thing. And because of this, the target of, of Michel's copying is, is not real. And he can't kind of truly achieve it. Because once again, the movie magic actually paints you the unrealistic. In in movies, the characters never has to face anything. They they can keep their stone cold poker faces on. They can wake up in the morning and they don't look shuffled at all. They they look like they haven't even been asleep at at any point. That that's something that a film can do with its mm -hmm. makeup and its lighting and its dramatic camera angles. All that you can't really actually pull off in real life. Michel tries that in the in the opening of the film w with his his suit and his hat and how his head is tilted and it looks laughable and that something doesn't work on Michel because the unreal doesn't work in in reality. You can't be a fictional character like he is on screen in real life. Michel is the young Quentin Tarantino trying to establish and find his personality the way that he wants to express himself. Yeah, and and the source that Michel is is looking that identity is is from the realm of fiction. And I think that the film kind of really heavily emphasis on this and also emphasizes the um, the need for for the audience to realize that the film is a piece of art or, or the film to create its identity as a piece of art instead of simulation of reality through the Irish shot which concludes this scene and the fact that the next scene opens with an alacot which are also editing techniques that are extremely noticeable like yeah when when the scene closes with the irish shot you as an audience member you can't escape the notion that that's not real life real life doesn't have irish uh, irish shots so mm. it 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 strengthens the the statement and and the understanding that this is movie and this is not reality this exists in in separation of of reality more of the rudeness uh, to bypassers is established when they meet again, Patricia and Michelle. Somebody is asking for, is it a light or matches, in any case, and tells him to go get his own. There is also that story that he tells to Patricia to prepare Patricia for what is about to come, what is about to be revealed to her. In any case, at some point, he tells the story about the bus driver having a similar situation to his. And the story didn't end well. Well, he should have taken the hint from that, but what do you know? There is a jump cut car ride. This is one of the most memorable moments from the film, at least personally. And she says that she has a headache. And she's on the way, driven by Michelle, to a meeting with a journalist. Oh, who is supposed to be at least a journalist. And, well, it seems that the discussion is heading into that direction when they meet. We have also this uh, story plot point about the cowardness, how, well, in Michel's view, women are cowards in traffic. Women are cowards in lots of situations, especially a coward is uh, the Patricia that he is in love with, supposedly. 
ancestorchisa laus or how what are the other translations for that bitch then there is the meeting with the journalist and she says that she would like to dig into a hole and stay there while Michelle keeps on spying them and we have a moment where we see that uh, once again there's kind of an open relaxed uh, approach to sexuality somehow where they are kissing in the car the journalist and uh, Patricia and Michelle sees this but once again no action of any kind this is not making their their relationship in any way more hard it just continues like nothing ever happened which is a common theme yeah they're, they're getting, at the same time nothing kind of happened yeah yeah and this open uh, approach to sex then yeah it's it's also important to remember and establish that Michelle and Patricia they they really aren't in in a relationship could this even be the most iconic and the, the 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 kind of a scene that you always remember the first time when you think about this film? It might be the case for me. The moment with Michelle in Patricia's hotel room, which goes on for quite a long time, and it was filmed in an actual hotel, like we have mentioned, this uh, was done on a shoestring budget. Regardless of the shoestring budget, though, uh, the producer and the director ended up in a fist fight because the production was not heading apparently in the direction that the producer was wishing it to go more than likely you know this was of course a very artistic process we know that uh, Godard uh, came up with a lot of this dialogue on a day day to day basis wherever they were shooting on location and on some days he seemed to have more ideas for dialogue or angles and on some days he had less ideas. Somebody made the notion that when they were filming, the days were even 10 plus hours of work or 15 minutes, depending on the amount that Jean-Luc Godard happened to have ideas for that day. So I can see how that this, this could completely piss off the producer side here. Uh, but at the same time, there is also a statement from the crew that the whole production was very organized. So go figure. But coming back to this scene, the motivation for Michel to come here is that the hotel that he was staying in was booked. And I don't know if it was or not, but in many scenes we established that we cannot trust Michel in any way. He's lying. He's, he's lying in so, so many occasions. We established a pulling a long face theme that comes into conclusion in the end of the film. Says that he didn't sleep with the journalist. Who knows? Maybe he did, maybe not. And adds that Michelle's motive to be in this hotel is because he wants to sleep with her. Uh, that's more than likely an actual fact. I kept doubting that uh, there was any kind of actual love going on. More of a kind of a flinch, affection towards, as he states out in the car, that you have so juicy body parts here and there. Why wouldn't I care about you? Yeah, that's right. While uh, Patricia is actually into this kind of a Romeo and the Juliet type of uh, dream romance story and wants some time to think about whether whether she actually is romantically interested in Michelle or not. There's an ass crap and slap kind of feeding of those times. And she finds the passport that says Kovacs and then lies to her that it's uh, his brother. Does she really buy it? It seems to be so. Or at least... I think some kind of a suspicion is arising 
in her at least that something is not quite straight with this guy. And and the constant discussion about death. Michelle is fascinated by death. And uh, that is further exemplified by the dead body or unconscious body that we saw earlier. And he says that he, he thinks about death all the time. But then again has this kind of a nonsensical attitude towards death. She also says that she's pregnant. And the only reaction we get from Michelle to this is, well, you should be more careful. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this is what I'm talking about when it comes to non-reactions of the film. And I just couldn't crack this nut why this, this, this keeps happening. And uh, he tries to reach Antonio by phone to get his money. Doesn't quite work yet. This takes a long time to get the, get the money. And what is it in your translation? Do you see that uh, she responds to him that she's 100 years old or 20 years old? And then he remarks that I think you look younger than that. Connection to cars is made. He explains that he has sold cars in New York. Once again, who knows? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Maybe there is no reason to lie about that. And... Uh, she says that she's very independent, which is why she's making kind of a big deal about not right off the bat trying to hook up with this guy. Interesting existential questions. Would you rather grieve or feel nothing at all? Your thoughts, Henrik? I don't know. I find it kind of as, as hard to answer as the characters of the film. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it's 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 hard to say. If if grief would be the only emotion you would be allowed, I don't know. I I don't I I don't believe in in being emotionless and, and ridding yourself from emotions. Blank, pale, emotionless face. So by by that default, I would be welco- welcoming the grief just to have an emotion. But then again having grief as your only emotion yeah hard to say maybe maybe i would be without any at all in that point but can't say for certain yeah particularly not a big fan of grief from my own experiences i prefer well, yeah well it can be also a source of inspiration yeah she would like to be called ingrid sorry if you're called ingrid but uh, i have some psychotic hatred towards this name uh, but it's that, that's that's what swedish cinema and ingrid bergman gives you <laughs> but the, also this the the film is full of references to different kind of pop culture of the time and ingrid was also a reference to one of them i i, I maybe you know that but these are here sprinkled all over the place and uh, Michelle says that I'm not much of a looker, but I'm quite the boxer. And uh, the actor, whose name is Jean-Paul Belmondo, he was a boxer for a short while until he noticed that something is happening to his face when he was looking into the mirror. So that was the end of that, which is the source for his professional way of uh, doing the boxing movement. This film also has non-kiss kisses, like their flips, you know, many places connect. But it's not really a kiss, they're just, the faces are touching. Which is interesting, and uh, <laughs> this was uh, parodized in uh, in a film that makes a parody out of the film. It's a short film. I don't know if you have if, if you have seen it, but I can wholeheartedly recommend it. Uh, it's called uh, Je t'aime John Wayne. So I love you, John Wayne. 
you can find it on YouTube if you're interested. Yeah, I must confess that that's something I haven't seen. Car ride together once again. He says that she's a coward, and continues reading the newspaper when they get out of the car. And it's Godard who smokes him out as the villain of the film. Kind of interesting because he's super integral to the whatever plot you have in this film at this yeah, point. Kind of, kind of a more important Stanley moment before Stanley moments, where I think. Yeah, I I like this uh, approach that they had here. And then Patricia interviews a writer. Uh, do women have a role to play in modern society? If she's charming and wears a striped dress and dark glasses, so this kind of a playful language is going on here, and and the scene finishes finishes with Patricia looking at the audience when she has just heard the answer to what's your greatest ambition: to become immortal and then die. I wonder if that happens to Michelle then. Supposedly not. Uh, maybe not Michelle, because he may not be famous enough from his crimes to really be immortal in in that sense well he was on the uh, front page of the newspaper so i guess that's something that that, that's uh, that's something if nothing it's it's a good um, rookie start and uh, michelle goes to try to sell his car or this car that he stole and the dialogue goes pretty much with the seller like this or the 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 guy who is uh, running this uh, car sales company Oh, you're the killer, so you won't get the money for the car right now. And then Michelle goes like, "Oh, oh well, well, can I still use your phone? Go ahead." And then the guy beats him up <laughs> for no reason at all. Uh, well, the car, a car salesman, the junkyard dude, whatever that character was, he did sabotage Michelle Michelle's car so that it wouldn't drive. Yeah, I, I. Yes, in an attempt that Michelle couldn't take the car away from from the lot, and and just so that you know the he he could now keep it instead of Michelle, for example, selling it to someone else or something aching to that. That mischievous, lying bastard now is on a taxi ride with Patricia and explains that the 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 car is. He doesn't have the car because uh, it had to be taken into into caretaking because the car had some hits, got a scratch, and the friend that owned owed him money, of course, disappeared just five minutes ago. Just like Michelle keeps disappearing, and the police are always one step uh, one step behind. And everything is apparently her fault. I don't know how, but apparently so. And here we get to this uh, my favorite scene. So. Quote, Paris girls look like tarts in those short dresses. And uh, then uh, Michelle goes like, makes me want to run to them behind them and do like this. And then he just, <laughs> uh, so random, he just goes there and uh, lifts the skirt of the lady and goes back. The funny thing is here, of course, not being dis- disrespectful towards what the women are wearing, but the way that this just comes completely out of nowhere. And doesn't have any point. Or maybe it does. Uh, so Patricia returns to the office of hers. Inspectors interview her. Says that if she doesn't want problems with her passport, she might do well to keep the people informed. And the chase is on again. Patricia immediately helps Michelle to get out of the scenery. 
Patricia herself runs into the theater and then out of the theater in a kind of a spy flick fashion, the signs around the street start informing the police is on him. A marriage is suggested, quote, so you're married. That was a long time ago. And I, w I would just suspect that this uh, guy is completely full of it. Quote, someone must have been, must have seen us together and gave us away. That's, that's really bad. What is really bad? Giving people away? No, it's normal. Informers inform, burglars burgle, murder is murder, lovers love. Which is a God-given truth. That it is. Stealing the Cadillac, Henrik. And somehow it's better to say goodnight in English so that you don't, don't get caught up or raise any suspicion, according to Michel's theory. Well, seems to work. Meeting of Antonio, finally, but no, you can't get the money yet. Just discussions and organizing for a meet for the actual money moment. So they go into the studio of, uh, is it then Antonio's studio? I'm not sure, but they're in the studio. And then the people leave and they have some alone time there to stay, uh, say hello. And they're talking about very random stuff. Michel has also lost one of his shades all of a sudden. While Patricia is sent to buy a bottle of milk and to call the police. And she goes back to the studio and, and once again, this kind of a non-reactionary way. Oh, you called the police? Oh, bummer. Oh, well. And she makes the notion that since she's being so cruel to him, she evidently doesn't love him. That's her conclusion. And finally, Michelle gets the money. Also, this uh, guy offers him a gun, but somehow it, he doesn't accept that. But then it's thrown at him, and once he picks it up to shoot, of course the police shoot him. And this is once again shot in a kind of a perhaps unintentionally hilarious way, because uh, he's supposedly about to shoot at the cops. Then we cut to a kind of a close-up of a cop. The cop shoots. Next scene we see Michelle just running in a wide shot on the street, and we see that the uh, there seems to be a bullet on his back. Actually, originally, Jean-Luc Godard wanted to have it a little bit more brutal in a way that there would be a piece of dialogue where one of the cops would say something along the lines of Quick! Shoot him in the back! But you know, the scriptwriter advised against it that that's too much. Anyway, here we have the legendary moment where Michel finally falls down on the ground with some... It's just regular passerbyers, not uh, related to the filming in any way, just looking what the hell is happening here. Okay, so Michel falls down and then he does this uh, expression face game that they had back in the hotel, which Patricia doesn't repeat, which I was expecting. It doesn't happen in this romantic fashion, just more like he is laying the insults now that you're a real louse. With the final shot where she says, what's a louse? Or there are the different translations, as we have noted. And Yeah, in my version, that's a scumbag. Scumbag is one of them. Or, or, or the dialogue starts with Michelle stating that it's it's disgusting, really. Yes. And Patricia asks, what did he say? And the cop next to Patricia comments, he said, you are a real scumbag. And there's one translation where it goes literally as, it's really disgusting, 
What did he say? He said, you are really disgusting. What is disgusting? There's also a puke translation. Makes me want to puke. What did he say? He said, you make him want to puke. What's that mean, puke? Yeah. None of the English translations of, of this dialogue exchange work. But uh, the kind of a gist of it is, I guess, clear that it's something not nice. But that not nice could also be kind of a callback to earlier scenes and just being kind of a humoristic about that. I, I don't know. I I didn't take the ending scene as any kind of a condemnation of Patricia. Like, I, I didn't yeah. take it the way that Michelle holds any kind of animosity towards Patricia, even though Patricia betrayed him. It, to me, that's, once again, that's tying down with the whole, or, or my interpretation of, of the theme of the film, which is the crafting of identity. Like, at, at the end of the film, b- before these very last shots, that there is, like like you mentioned, there is a moment when Patricia uh, informs, informs Michelle that he has sold him out to the cops. And Michelle's first reaction is to maintain that he is tired and he loves her. He refuses to run. But in, in that moment, you can kind of ask yourself, is is Michel being honest here? Is he really that much in love with Patricia? A person who he hasn't really get to know that deeply because they have only met so few times. Is he really that tired? Or is this just, once again, Michel trying to play the archetype? To be the Clyde from Bonnie and Clyde, the doomed gangster. Uh, then when he finally decides to run, he meets his friend who repeatedly tries to offer him the gun, which Michel refuses and does not want to defend himself with force. And then his friend, like mentioned, he, he throws the gun at Michel, forcing the gun on Michel. This way, kind of a trapping Michel inside the role that he has been playing. This is almost like the outside world through his friend informing Michelle that since Michelle has so such of a long time wanted to be a Hollywood movie gangster brought into real life, now he has to be that gangster. Like he can't now dial it back and just decide that he has had enough with the role. He has to play the role to its logical conclusion, which is the dramatic death of of the Hollywood gangster, which often happens at the end of the film. At the very end, when he finally gets shot and and lies there on the ground dying, Michel does not show regret. His face doesn't show pain or anger or any other emotion. Like he he remains emotionless in in that moment and that also, uh, the way how I read it is that at that moment, Michelle uh, accepts his death like, for example, James Cagney would accept his death in, in a gangster film. That That's the... Uh, James Cagney... Michelle is James Cagney from the Angels with Dirty Faces without that the last minute turn of, of, of the character. He, he stays true to the gangster archetype and and dies simply with commenting that it's such of a drag. It's really disgusting to die. But 
still accepting his death stone-faced and through this action he finally actually becomes what he has tried to be throughout the film which is a silver screen movie gangster yeah there has been also many different readings to this uh, for this ending in a way that Michelle would have would have been insulting towards Patricia and that the, the kind of ending would highlight that she is kind of a, a simple tone innocent doesn't understand the word or perhaps the concept that uh, she was just some kind of a woman to to play with for a while there's a lot of trivia we could have dropped until the end of time about this film my recommendation is that uh, you listen to this episode and then watch the film and look for more trivia if you're interested we're going to we have been going for quite a while here so i think it's time to jump into just a small look at the business and box office so two women and breathless they were widely available in the u.s and england theaters uh, was seen over by over two million people or at least there were over two million admissions during the original french run in france it opened in paris and not in an art house project way but uh, at a chain of four commercial theaters to be exact 259 thousand forty six tickets in four weeks so substantial profit there is a rumor that it was over 50 times the initial investment it immediately got a strong and surprised even astonished positive critical reception and as we have stated it quite uh, clearly rewrote many of the rules that we have come accustomed to in cinema godard famously said quote there used to be just one way there was one way you could do things. There were people who protected it like a copyright, a secret cult only for the initiated. That's why I don't regret making Breathless and blowing that all apart. Budget was $80,000 in USD. And yeah, you could imagine that Roger Ebert was a big fan of the film. It's included in his great movies list of 2003. And he commented that it has a headlong pacing. It's cool detachment, its dismissal of authority and the way its narcissistic young heroes are obsessed with themselves and oblivious to the larger society. End quote. Oh, I believe I'm uh, heading to the quickies. Oh, I guess that's sticking the traditional format of, of our product. All right. Favorite performance would for me be... This is an interesting name because... Well, they had a different family name, and then they the family changed the surname into a Swedish one due to their heritage. So I believe uh, the first name should be pronounced in an American way, and then the Swedish surname I'm just going to pronounce in the Swedish way. So Jean Seberi. Kind of natural performances all around, not only Seberi. Apart from the bizarre point to make the characters not react to anything. So yes, that's my pick. Yeah, I'm also gonna go with the gene in this film. It's full of genes. Basically, everybody yeah. who is tired with the film is is, is <laughs> a gene of some sort. No, I I, I also take Seabury. Yeah, good pick, by the way. Uh, favorite shot. Okay, uh, well, when when Patricia's having a staring competition and she looks at him through a magazine or what was it? Maybe that's the one. Yeah, I'm gonna go with the same one. Okay, favorite scene. Uh, 
Oh yeah, of course. I mentioned my favorite scene already. It's uh, lifting the the girl's skirt. Yeah, for me it's Michelle going to meet the newspaper editor. The escalator moment of that scene, more specific. Favorite quote. Go ahead. Um, the film has a lot of really good quotes. What quotable movie altogether? My pick for the favorite goes for Michelle's detective impression moments. If a girl says something's fine and can't light her cigarette, then she's afraid of something. I don't know what, but she's afraid. Mm. For me, it was the aforementioned. Someone must have been seeing us together and gave us away. That's very bad. What is? Giving people away. No, it's normal. Informers. Inform burgers. Burglar murders. Murder. Lover's love. Favorite kill? Um, exactly two kills in the film. First one is comedical. The second one is more dramatic. I guess I'm going to go with the dramatic, so it's Michelle's death. Okay, well there could also be a third kill, we just don't know if the guy is unconscious or what. But my favorite kill goes to the beginning of the cop and then the rabbit-like jumping on the fields followed by that. But Henrik, I wanted to ask you, have you been in France? Um, unfortunately just once. Okay. Helena is two weeks, but that's... That's all, all of France I've been able to see. Two weeks in France? Only. Yeah. Wow. Well, Paris, in, to be more precise. Make oh, it all, all, all the noticeable co- uh, cultural points, like Louvre and, and Notre Dame and the Eiffel. Yeah, perfect. Uh, <laughs> yeah, as a big Bond fan also, it's quite of a connection to go finally, or quite of an experience finally to go to Eiffel Tower and walk those... Same stairs that Roger Moore once did when she was. We are, we are not bringing <laughs> Roger Moore back into this podcast. We we all, already we finally managed to get rid of the bastard here, and he's he's not coming back. <laughs> so that's that. But yeah, uh, like you, uh, I have been in most of those uh, tourist locations in Paris, but unfortunately, I was there for only maybe like an extended weekend, three or four days, which is nothing. And I really prefer your way of experiencing new places very slowly, kind of immersing yourself there and just kind of having this meditative experience, sitting on some veranda outside of a coffee shop and just feeling the vibes, taking your time. But what drew you out? Uh, for me, nothing. But I I can say see that the artistic styles of the, of, of the film and, for example, the fourth wall, break that happens suddenly in the beginning of the movie that may be too much for some audiences do we need to rethink these categories because in more than more ways than we have been even thinking about it because what drew you out what drew you in Jean-Luc Godard is ruining these categories altogether because we're not supposed to be drawn in right (laughs) so Mm -hmm. what drew me out well then again I was kind of hypnotized by the film by the sheer way that it's technically produced and so maybe that's uh, Jean-Luc Godard's great failure for me that is but uh, no nothing really drew me out or drew you in uh, to me it's the o- overall artistic style o- o- of the film it's, it's not really any kind of a- any one element 
like cinematography or any any individual scene or anything like that but it is kind of the combination of all things that carries over throughout the film yeah there's another particular high point or points in this film i was drawn in by most of the product there was one moment where i was a little bit distracted because it seemed that the story wasn't moving really at the pace i was wishing it to because Michelle was looking for this Antonio guy forever. Scissors of Sacrilege, what would you change in the film? How would you improve the film? Uh, kind of hard to say. This, this is a really tricky film to really edit because of its artistic nature. Like if, if you would try to edit it somehow, then almost immediately by default you would be trying to implement traditional elements into a into an art piece that defies traditionality and does not want to be traditional in any form so in in that sense i wouldn't really try to to enhance the film where to start when the film is built in the way that it's built and uh, no, you can't yeah you, you can't really start anywhere and it's a piece of cinema history, so so no. But what would be your evil alternate version of the climax? Anything like that? If you would uh, go completely twist it around, could you see something else happening by the end of the film? Not really, to be to be absolutely honest, because the I I would say the way how Michelle dies at the end of the film is is needed for that closing off identity and and fully becoming what he he tries to be to, to drive that point home i would say the final death of of michelle the the very ending of the film it also has to kind of keep with uh, keep its comedical tone or, or the first kind of a reactionary answer to a question how would you change the ending would be make it less comedical, make it more dramatic, as that's how the, the death of a main character is portrayed, once again, in traditional cinema. But the death itself, Michel's death, has to be comedical, as in to drive home the point that he is closing the circle of forming and understanding his self-identity. Three adjectives to describe the film. Inherently French. Expressive and proclaiming. Mm. Non-expressionist, free hand, and oddly gorgeous. But would you recommend Breathless 1960, Jean-Luc Godard? I would. I, I would recommend Godard. I would recommend French New Wave. Most definitely I would be recommending Breathless. Especially, like already pointed out, in, in during during this episode, if you don't have previous experience with with French New Wave and you wanna get into it, I would say that Breathless might be the best and easiest getting into point uh, with 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 the French New Wave cinema. It's, it 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 has all the all the trappings and hallmarks of of a French New Wave. You you see the goals and the ideals of the New Wave movement. You also see the toolkit that New Wave movement used throughout its 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 run and its its cinema. 
but it it still isn't used to an extent where the the kind of a, the, the media and and the ideal would rule completely over the the cinematic experience into a point where where, where the style of the new wave would make it really hard to try to decipher and understand what the film is trying to say. Like with French New Wave, you can easily make the mistake that you picked the wrong film and that's like jumping into the deep end of the pool. And Breathless is still the the shallow end with the ladders on. I'm quite still titillated by the fact that I have finally chosen a film where Henrik will not say that, oh, well, this film doesn't in any way represent the genre that we are now jumping into, and this would be the kind of the worst uh, entry point for this kind of a cinema ever. So finally this has turned around. <laughs> I would recommend uh, Breadless very much as well. I don't know. This is always the kind of point when this question is being asked, what is there to be added anymore into this? Except that all that you said above and uh, the golden age of at least Jean-Luc Godard's run in New Wave is around the 60s from 1960 to 1967 roughly. So all those films around from that era and what was it like a, a goodbye to language 2014? Also a very experimental piece and I would recommend that as well for our listeners. You really know you're watching Breathless when... When you call your girl girlfriend disgusting scumbag and puke and she has no idea what any of those words mean. The dirty illiterate. You really know you're watching Breathless when you peek under a girl's dress. Under duress. Fucking nailed it. <laughs> okay, and at this point we are supposed to have our... Podcast recommendation section of this podcast. There is a podcast called Indie Film Hustle. It's more for amateurs or industry professionals, people who are maybe starting their cinematic career and they're looking for different advice for gears to use, what what kind of a cinematic language to use, whether the coronavirus time is an amazing or a horrible time to start your cinematic career. All those answers and more. In, in the film hustle. So go check it out. Available in all podcast players. So would that be that for this week? I guess that covers it. Okay. Would it be time to give our lab coats to a magnificent African elephant? I have no idea why I came up with that. There is uh, way too uh, many. Uh, I, I have ne- neither. Let's not continue from this topic on. <laughs> Like Jean-Luc Godard, I'm desperately trying to <laughs> add all kinds of stupid references throughout this episode. <laughs> it will be an interesting punching tournament here next week. Looking forward to it. See you next week. Until then. Breathless actually is one of the easiest works of the French new wave to to actually get into. <laughs>